And we're continuing the series from last week where we talked about his final instructions on unity. We talk here his final instructions as he talks through joy and peace. And I'll I'll admit, reading this scripture, you know, sometimes I will read a scripture that it lands on a specific day that I'm supposed to preach. And I think, God, that seems like one of the dumbest things that I can preach on. But the truth is that scripture like this is meant for moments like this. Paul did not write this scripture while he was, you know, on his villa enjoying the good life. Paul wrote the scripture while he was imprisoned for the gospel, where he was suffering for the gospel. He wrote this scripture after going through so much in life, being beaten, being imprisoned, being chased out, being stoned. He is writing this after going through a life of true pain and true suffering. Of seeing what it is like from Paul's eyes then to go through moments like this with our eyes. So let's read Philippians chapter four, verses four to nine. Paul says this, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. What a statement Paul makes here. What a statement. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. And then he essentially says, you did not hear me. I'm going to say it again. I will say it again. Rejoice. Paul is saying this from prison. Paul is saying this after going through shipwrecks, after going through beatings, after, like I said, being stoned. He is saying this. He is calling the people of God to rejoice in every situation, to in all things rejoice. And he knows it's so important. He doesn't say it once. He says, I want to make sure that you have read that, that you have heard that, that you learn to rejoice in all situations. Rejoice. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how hard you've been hit, what circumstances around you look like. Learn to rejoice in all things. Whenever we have Jesus with us, we have cause to have joy. One of my favorite lines that King David says in the Psalms, he says, to the Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. When you understand salvation, when you understand the good news of what Jesus has done, when you understand what he has saved you from, what you walk in as being a son or a daughter of the king, when you understand these things, then you always have something to rejoice in. No matter what other people would label you as, no matter what this world calls you, no matter what other people do to you, there is cause to rejoice when you meditate on the goodness of God and his goodness towards us. 
And Paul wants to get it across to the Philippians that in every circumstance, in every situation, throughout all suffering and all pain, there is never a time where we do not have cause to rejoice because there is never a time where Jesus is not by our side, who is a faithful helper and champion to fight in our battles for us, where we can go before him in our time of need and expect the help that he provides. There is always time to rejoice because Jesus has not left you. There may be times where you don't feel like rejoicing because you may feel alone. You may feel like the voices of the world, the voices of your situation, the voice of your battle is stronger than the voice of God in your life. But you have to recognize when you see those things, that is a lie from the enemy. When the joy of the Lord starts to seep away from your heart, as a cause to pray like David did, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remind me why I should have joy in you, why I should rejoice this morning, why I should rejoice at all times and in all things. Remind me, God, of your goodness and your grace that can never be taken away from me by any person, by any authority, that it says in your word, no one can snatch us from your hands. No one. Father, remind me why I rejoice today in all things, that you are with me, and whenever you are with me, I have cause to rejoice. You know, something that has helped me the past couple of weeks is I've ended and I've started every single day with thanking God for three things in my life. In the beginning, this was a really hard practice because what we naturally do is we naturally complain about everything that's going on in our life. It is much easier for our, our minds to dwell on the negative things than it is on anything positive happening. And so something that I've just, I felt like God was putting on my heart to do was start thanking him. And I started to realize in the beginning, it was all right, what are, it was hard to come up with those three things. But now as I've gotten into the practice, it's hard to only keep it at three things. Because every morning when I wake up, I'm reminded to rejoice in Jesus for all that I have. And every night before I go to sleep, I'm reminded to rejoice in Jesus for all that I have. It starts my day off properly and, and medically, scientifically. The thing that you meditate on before you go to sleep will consume 80% of your dreams that night. And so it helps me mentally when I sleep at night to dwell on the things that I can thank God for. But there's, there's, very, there's a very real issue when we think about rejoicing. And the real issue is that there are things that will stop us. Things that we would feel give us the ability not to rejoice anymore, that we feel justified and no longer in throwing the peace and the joy of the Lord aside and saying, God, in this situation, that does not count. And Paul hears and he sees those things. And, he, and so he goes into different things of why we should still rejoice. In verse five, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Right There are times where people will do things that will anger us, that we feel justified to react. And we say, no, when you do that, this is the consequence. This is the reaction that you're going to get from me. 
But Paul says, no, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Jesus says this, if, if someone takes your tunic, ask them if they need the other, right? There is this understanding that in God's kingdom, our reactions to how other people make us mad and want to bring out hatred from us are completely different from what we are innately taught in this world. And so Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, but he doesn't leave it there. He gives us a a reason for that. And that is this, that the Lord is at hand. He is essentially saying this. He is saying that the judge will judge them for their actions. You are responsible for how you react, where you let your heart go to, where you let your mind go to. But if somebody does something against you, if somebody does something wrong against you, guess what? The judge will come and judge them. No one will get away with what they have done because every single one of us will stand before judgment before God. Every single one. Paul is saying, even when injustice is done, guess what? Justice will be had. Whether in this life or the next, nobody will get away with what they have done. And that's hard because we look around us on earth and we see people get away with things all the time. It will frustrate us. You know, there's many causes that we, that we give our hearts over to and we see injustice done in these causes constantly. We see people that cause injustice against us and, it's, and, and to, to not be vengeful, to not be hateful, to not be resentful, to not let our joy and our peace be robbed from us because of this is hard. But Paul gives us something that we can look forward to that don't worry because the Lord is at hand. That is a saying that means they will be judged. Judgment is going to come. They will not get away with what they do. There is no injustice that will not be served in the end. I think of James 5 that we've preached through in our church. James 5 is one of the strongest condemnations of injustice that we find in Scripture. Where James, the author of that book, says that the very things that the people have used to oppress others and cause injustice, those are the very things that will testify against them in the day of judgment. So the very riches that they have accumulated, the the very things that they have brought in their life, the things that they have loved, the things that they thought were more worthy than other people's lives, these things that they have brought in, that have made them happy, that are shiny. These are the things that in the day of judgment will then speak up against them and be the thing that testifies against them when they stand before the judge. Well, you may think, but I have have very real wants. I have very real needs. I have very real desires. The realities of life, God, these things are hitting me. What does Paul say about that? In verse 6, he says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There will be always things that we can worry about in our life. 
And in times like this, the worry, the anxiety, the stress, it just increases. And what happens is we feed off of that anxiety. We feed off of that worry together. We look at what is happening on social media. It is a constant feed and a constant stream of anxiety and of anger, of news media. It is a constant stream of anxiety and of anger. And we think, how can I have joy? How can I rejoice when I have this constant reason not to? When in my own heart, in my own mind, I struggle with, it, it, it seems impossible with everything going on. This is what Paul says. He says, replace your worry with prayer. Replace your worry with prayer. What would your life look like if you spent more time praying than worrying? What would your life look like if, if all the time you spent in your anxious thoughts you decided to transform that time into prayerful thoughts. What would your life look like if you replaced your worry with prayer? What if all that time you spent overthinking was instead spent in prayer? I would say naturally and normally we spend one minute in prayer and hours in anxious thoughts and then we wonder why we do not have joy. I can tell you right now, you will not have joy if that is what your life time spent looks like. If we spend hours in anxiety, if we spend hours overthinking, if we spend hours allowing and consuming anxious thoughts and anxious media, what is going to consume our mind? Anxiety will be the thing that consumes us. We have to train ourselves to put those things away and instead of worrying, come to God in prayer. A one-minute prayer is not going to cut it for us. Paul says, don't spend time in anxiety. Instead, spend time in prayer. And when you replace your worry with your prayer, the joy of the Lord will be something that will be hard to leave. But then he says, and when you pray, don't act like God owes you. See, sometimes our prayers are just an extension of our anxiousness. Don't let your prayers stem from a place of discontent. Why haven't you taken away this yet, Lord? Why don't I still have a job? Or why is this person still do this against me? Or why is this still going on? Or why haven't you answered me? And this is where we spend most of our prayer. But Paul says, no, request or pray with thanksgiving. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me by your grace, for putting a roof over my head, for giving me clothes on my back. Lord, please help me through this situation. It's hard. I'm angry. I need you. I cannot do this without you. That is a prayer that we can model that comes to God. Not acting like he owes us, but going to God and saying, God, I need you right now. Instead of coming to God with our demands and pride, we can go to him humbly, begging him for his mercy and his grace. Paul says, come with thanksgiving, request with thanksgiving. That's a different prayer. Then God, you better fix this problem or else. 
what will happen when we replace worry with prayer and discontent with thanksgiving? Peace, 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 peace will come. In verse 7, he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I remember when this verse hit me for the first time. This, this line, which surpasses all understanding, what that means. I, I realized that, I don't know why it never hit me before, but it wasn't until a few years ago that, that it really sunk in my heart that this is peace that literally makes no sense in the situation that I am in. Right? For Paul, that meant having peace in the middle of a shipwreck or being stoned to death. For us, that's peace among crisis. How is it possible? This doesn't make sense for us to have peace. How is it that people go through crisis? How is it people that mourn death? How is it people that, that go through some of the worst hardships in life, but yet still have the peace of God in their life? This is how, Paul says. It says, if you replace your worry with prayer, if you take away your discontent and instead replace it with thanksgiving, what will happen? The peace of God will come over you that surpasses understanding, that does not make sense for where you are and what is going on around you, that you will have a storm raging everywhere, your emotions going crazy, the people around you going crazy, but you stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, no that you have built your house on him. And when you do that, when the storms come, when the winds come, when the rains come, that you will not be shaken. That is peace that surpasses understanding. That when the disciples were in the boat and the storm was raging and they thought they were going to capsize and die and they woke him up and he said, you of little faith. They were worrying, they were anxious about what was going on around them, and Jesus wakes up, wakes up and goes, what, are you, what is wrong? What are you complaining about? And he speaks to the storm, and it is still. This is the peace that surpasses understanding. Knowing that Jesus is in the boat with us. We can call upon his name. He is our great help in times of need. And when we do that, the peace of God that will not make sense in the situation that we are in, that will not make sense with the emotions that are raging in our heart, that will not make sense with what is going on around us, that peace will come and it will dwell in our hearts and it will not be robbed from us. People should look at us as people of God and wonder, how are you so calm when everything around you is so bad? Because when we replace worry with prayer and discontent with thanksgiving, the peace of God comes and it what? It guards our hearts from the roaring lion who is seeking to devour. It will guard your heart. It will guard your heart from the hatred that will devour you. It will guard your heart from the discontent that will devour you. It will guard your heart from entitlement that will devour you. It will guard your heart 
from saying, Jesus, this is what I'm owed, or why is this like this, or how is this going on, or I can't stand this. It will guard your heart. So when the peace of God comes, it will be like a shield around your heart. Now, when the other things try to come in, when the, the anxieties and the pressures and the stresses of this world try to penetrate it, it will not ever make it to your heart because God's peace will literally stand guard over your heart and will not let those things in. Let the peace of God do the work of guarding your heart from the enemy's ways, from all the ways he tries to come and penetrate what is going on. We need to stop wondering where our peace is when we haven't learned to rejoice in all situations. I could say this about our church. One thing I'm really proud of our church about is how we have handled what has gone on over the last six months. You know, I think of crisis after crisis where the first crisis, losing our building, would have been enough to crush many churches and many people. But what did, I, what did I see happen? If we're using that as a case study, what if, if, if you remember, what did our church do? We came together and we prayed. And we prayed a lot with supplication before God. And what happened was God's peace came and God's peace guarded the hearts of our church. So that, yeah, in reality, there was worry to be had. There was stress to be had. There was, there was what in the world is going on to be had. But I saw the peace of God guard us as a congregation where we were able to say, no matter what happens, we know that God is leading us, that God is in, char- is in charge and that he is sovereign and so that we can follow as he is calling us to do. And that meant at the end that we made a 48-hour shift from where are we going to find a building to let meet in homes and we were able to do that and our church has thrived since then. In the four months after that, we saw more fruit than we did in the previous year of being a church with people serving, people baptized, people coming to know Jesus, community being developed, discipleship happening. We saw growth in all these beautiful areas. Why? Because we were able to sit down and say, God, no matter what's going on, we will not not allow anxiety to be the rule of the day. We will come to you in prayer. We will come to you in thanksgiving. We will come to you and we will rejoice. And his peace came and guarded our church. And I saw his peace guard us in so many beautiful ways. And what if uh, the crazy thing I've seen since then is, I, I can I will not I can't lie. The last two weeks I have gotten so many calls from strangers, pastors who are strangers, that have said, I've heard your story of how you've switched from meeting as a large group in a location on a Sunday to meeting in house churches with everything that is happening with COVID. It looks like we are going to become a house church model now. Can you explain to us how that happened? I've literally, almost every day, I've been fielding a call or an email from a stranger from somewhere in the U.S. that is calling and asking, how did that happen? What do you guys do? We would have never seen this in a million years. I would have never seen that in a million years. But God's faithfulness 
Many times we will be able to see when we put our trust in Him. And we have to be able to rejoice in the Lord. To be able to come to Him in prayer and thanksgiving and see His peace come so that we can build this understanding of God's faithfulness that it doesn't make sense right now to have peace. It doesn't make sense right now not to be anxious, but I know that God is working. I know that he is sovereign. And at the other end, maybe I will understand why he did this. We are starting to get a glimpse of why God did what he did for us. So Paul brings his argument to a close with this. He says in verse eight and nine, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. He says, all the things that I have told you, all the things that I have shown you, all the things that I have given you, do this. And the promise that Paul gives here is so important that we cannot gloss it over. What is the promise that he gives? He says, one commentator puts it this way. He says that as they make progress in this way by modeling him, they will find that it is not simply the peace of God, but the God of peace himself who will be with them. You are promised not just the peace of God. You are promised the God of peace who will be with you. This is such an incredible promise as we follow what Paul has called us to do. As we collectively obey God's call, not to look at the circumstances, not to look for a new building. What did we see? We saw God come through, that he was with us, that he is with us right now, that the circumstance of the crisis of this week and the one next week and the week after, he will be with us. The God of peace will be with us. That is a promise that is not a maybe, that is not an if, that is a promise that we can hold on to, that the God of peace will be with us. As we collectively, corporately stand together, follow what God has called us to do, he will be with us in everything. God is with you. He is with me. He is with our church. I think about all the ways that our church has come together. We have come together by blessing our neighborhood, the frontline workers with coffee. We have come together by blessing our neighbors with food. We have come together by opening up our homes, by sharing in our gifts in house churches. We have, and we will come together now during this crisis and mourn with those who are mourning, comfort those who need comfort, and stand for what God calls us to stand for. And we can do this with joy, we can do this with peace, but most of all, we must do this in unity. Because the scripture says, when the church is united, it says, 
Paul says this in, in Philippians, in the beginning of Philippians, that when you stand together, when you stand firm in unity of one mind and one accord, that is the sign of destruction to the enemy. That when they see people who are united, are of one mind and are of one purpose, there is a realization that the enemy has that he will not win. And so what we do together, we must do in one accord and one mind. Because that will be a sign of destruction for the enemy. That no matter what the enemy's plans are, no matter what he wants to accomplish, no matter what he wants to do, that our unity as a body, our unity as a people, that as we come together and as we pray, as we rejoice, as we give thanksgiving and God's peace shields us from his attacks, it will be a sign to him that he will be destroyed. That we have vision instead of division, which is two visions, different diverging visions. That we will have a singular vision, a singular motive, singular heart and singular mind to walk through this together. I pray that our church is a model. Not only a model for other people, but also a model for us individually that we learn how to walk through these things. We learn how to process pain together. We learn how to go through suffering together. We learn how to walk through crisis together, that these moments will be moments that set us up, not only as a church community, but as individuals where we learn how to walk through, process, pray through, and suffer well together, knowing that the God of peace is with us, that he will not leave us and he will not forsake us, that that is his promise as long as we are on mission for him, he will be with us to the very ends of the earth, no matter where we go. So I call us to practice these things as Paul has called the Philippian church to practice them, to stand firm in unity during crisis, to replace our worry with prayer, and to replace our discontentment with thanksgiving. And we can stand firm in the promise that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all your promises in scripture that we can stand firm on now. Lord, I pray that in the moments that it seems most crazy to follow you and to stand on your word and to believe in your peace and in your joy, I pray in those moments that you would meet us, that you would meet us right now. Because I know those moments are the moments that define our life, that define how we react, that define how we move forward, not only as a people, but also individually. And so I pray that as these things seem most crazy now to do, as it's just seemed like one thing has battered us after another, and it's easy to just say we give up and we give in to the craziness around us, to the anxiety around us, to the rage around us. Father, I pray that at, those, at this craziest moment that we would stand on your word and know that these promises are for us today and that all your promises are yes and amen. And so, Father, we say to this, we say yes, and as a church, we say amen. And we ask you, Lord, come with your mercy and your grace. 
God of peace, come quickly to crush Satan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.